Are you listening to this episode on Himalaya? If so, congratulations, because you're already using the best new podcast app out there. If you're not, you're missing out. Whether you're a podcaster or a fan, Himalaya is designed with you in mind and has a ton of cool features like curated, shareable playlists and collections made just for you. Aww. Along with personalized recommendations to help with content discovery. And the best part is, it's super easy to use! Exclamation point. It's definitely my favorite listening app, and I'm sure it'll be yours, too. Uh, so do yourself a favor, download Himalaya today, and be sure to follow Uncovering Unexplained Mysteries once you're there. What's up, everybody, and welcome to episode number 142 of Uncovering Unexplained Mysteries for Sunday, June 2nd, 2019. My name is Josh Cannon. I am drowsy. I am here with my co-host, Mike. Mike, how are you doing? I'm doing all right. Doing pretty good. Um, Been uh, getting a decent amount of hours of work. Uh, this week is a little bit more, uh, spread out, which I like better than having three straight days off and then like three or four or five straight days of like long shifts. <laughs> that, that was kind of a little, little crazy. Um, YouTube had a little issue this morning. It like had a server error that was just logging people out of their accounts and, that had me a little uh, flustered a bit. Uh, it seems like everything is kind of back to normal on that front. Were you were so, you worried that they deleted your channel for a second there? Not really. It just I could still see everything on the channel. It's just when I tried to go check my history or check my Creator Studio or try to upload anything, it would tell me, "Oh, you need to log in," or "You try to log in," and it says, "Oh, can't log you in. Sorry." Yeah. That's weird. Yeah. But anyway, I'm drowsy because I am back on anti-anxiety medications. Yay. I fought it for like, ah, geez, at least two whole years, maybe two and a half years. I mean, literally ever since I lived on my own, I have not been on it. Um, yeah, just it's just gotten it, my, my brain has just gotten way too stupid. Uh, as far as with the the anxiety and the OCD, uh, kind of controlling my free time, controlling you know my happiness, uh, and by controlling my happiness, it's not letting me have happiness. So um, I think it was just a lot of stress uh, build up from last month. My band played a lot of out of town shows. I don't normally leave my comfort bubble, um, so I think just the stress of travel and playing in other cities and um coupling that with uh, the fact that i would drink to uh, ease my nerves um that that was like a recipe for disaster for my brain um because i mean pretty much the day after every time i would drink uh, i would just feel 10 times worse than i did before i even drank in the first place and if you do that enough, then you eventually get to where you just feel ab anxious all the time. And I mean, that's how addiction starts, you know, blah, blah, blah. I don't want to spend too much time on that. But um, yeah, I mean, I wasn't I'm not saying I was getting addicted to alcohol, but 
it was, I don't know, it was becoming this weird thing to where I was, I'd feel crappy, then I'd drink and I'd feel good and have a sense of well-being and then the next day I'd feel crappy again and then the day after that I would still feel crappy and I really wouldn't feel good again until I drank and, uh, you know, it was, the, th the good news is for me is I've been down this road several times in my life where I come to this point mentally where I just, it's interfering in my life too much for me to like enjoy anything. So I have to get on some, some kind of a SSRI, which is a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, uh, which basically means that you keep more happy chemicals in your brain. So you have a sense of well-being and feeling good more that hasn't kicked in yet, folks. I have to say, uh, only on day two, of uh, taking the full dose of this um, anti-anxiety medication I'm on. Lexapro is what I'm taking. Um, and uh, yeah, it's day two of the full dosage. I'm feeling drowsy right now. I'm feeling drugged, but I am not feeling happier. Um, feeling less anxious, but, you know, more tired or whatever. But but don't let that deter you because uh, these are just side effects of initially taking the medicine. And when it fully kicks in um, in the past, it's completely like restored my life in many ways. And I don't doubt that it'll do it this time, too. Um, so, yeah, if you're having trouble out there and you listen to the, this podcast, just know that I'm right there with you. And uh, I've, you know... God, some of the panic attacks I've had this month have been so bad that I thought I was going to have to like go to the emergency room for one of them. I didn't. Thankfully, I was able to like break myself out of that cage of mental fuckery. But um, yeah, just know that uh, there's, you know, there there's help out there and uh, you should you should do it. And you're hearing me going through it right now. So uh, if I can do it. Then you can do it, too. Now that I'm off my soapbox and my public service announcement is over, um, we are going to finish um, probably uh, one of the lesser, I don't want to say popular, but happy episodes or what would you call it? Controversial? I, guess, I think a little bit of controversy in the, a little bit. the last one we did. I don't know. Some of you guys didn't really seem to dig the last one. I mean... Nobody dug it in the sense of they were, you know, happy about the subject matter. But, I mean, for the crime buffs out there and the crime fanatics, it's, it, you know, it's 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 a, a crazy story. <laughs> crazy enough that they made a documentary out of it that people uh, wanted us to talk about. And the documentary is called Abducted in Plain Sight. We did part one last episode. Uh, we'll catch you up quickly. Uh, we will finish part two. We were debating on whether we even want to do that or not, but, um, I mean, we, I mean, when you start something, you should finish it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's just kind of my, my, my view on things. I don't like starting things and not finishing them. Although that happens a lot on my YouTube channel, I have to be honest, <laughs> but that takes a lot more time. Oh, I want to start reviewing like an entire franchise and then like I get, busy with school work or literal work or you know actual work and then I, I i don't i don't really have as much time so <laughs> and it's like i i get that 
the subject matter of um child abuse is is very you know it's sensitive sensitive and a lot of people don't want to even hear it but see the thing about it is is that's part of the problem is because if you plug your ears and go ah, i can't hear what you're saying you know you you are be are making yourself ignorant to some of the signs some of the tells that yeah. someone could be a pedophile and i mean I, I think i don't think it's necessary i think what it's a sensitive subject is for those that have actually been abused well yeah and and, them, and i i i can, I can know, understand that's, that that's there's like triggers involved and things like that and and uh i i'm totally in understand I'm, i totally understand that and uh, it, it's something that you know a lot of these individuals they just live learn to live with it the best the way that they can and there are certain things that just trigger those feelings and those memories and that anxiety and uh they're not a fan of it and i don't think they're like plugging their ears or anything like that i, I think they know what to look for they just don't they kind of just don't want to be reminded of uh, what it was like and, and, and the experience. And that's fine. So, and, and if that's the case, then this episode isn't for you. Or fast forward to the middle of it when we talk about a guy who just killed a woman and did not necessarily sexually abuse her. If that makes you feel more comfortable, go and listen to that one. And I'm, I wasn't trying to be dismissive just then. I was just trying to lighten things up a little bit. Which I find is very hard to do in these situations when we're talking about this kind of thing. But... um. Look, I mean, the young lady who then, who is now a full-grown woman, if she had the courage to go out and speak out against this guy and make this documentary, then damn it, uh, I'm going, I'm going to talk about it and highlight what a piece of shit this guy was and her story, and uh, I mean, hopefully, it'll inspire some people, you know, who have been through that, and so that's the positive side of the coin on that one, but um. Yeah, this was a documentary called uh, Abducted in Plain Sight. Like I said, you should really listen to part one that we covered um, last week. And it's basically about these two families who live in a pretty nice part of... Uh, where'd they live? Like Pocatello, Pocatello. Yeah, Idaho. Idaho. And you had the Brobergs... And you had the uh, Birch Tolds, both fucking weird last names. Um, basically, two families that got along really well. They almost looked like your nuclear families, you know, like the old uh, Norman Rockwell paintings and the with the old station wagons and the old like nineteen seventies houses and the you know the the kids became friends and the parents became friends with one another. And then a lot of uh, weird, inappropriate shit started happening with the uh, father, Bob Birchtold, and the Broberg's daughter, Jan. And, um, yeah, I mean, basically, a, a breakdown of part one, quickly. Uh, Birchtold, Bob Birchtold, the husband of, you know, that family, whatever, uh, he had a thing for little girls, and uh, like most pedophiles, he kept it under wraps pretty good and basically manipulated his way through the Broberg family to get to Jan. Um, he 
uh, came on to the wife, uh, whose name was, I think, Mary, uh, Mary Jane. I don't know what her name. I don't remember her name. The wife, Broberg wife. Um, Marianne. Marianne. I knew it was something like that. He came on to the wife, Marianne, seduced her. He, you know, sorry again with the <laughs> last episode if I made light of this in a comical way, but he, uh, he got the uh, father, whose also name whose name was also Bob. I guess I'll just call him Robert. Robert Broberg. He got the father to um, to relieve him in the car with his hand. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Therefore, having you know dirt basically on either one of the parents that he could use at any time. To he also manipulated them in a way where he. Uh talked about how he needed to spend time with their daughter Jan in the evening for his therapy. Yeah, because he talks about how he was abused as a kid and he, you know, he went to some crackpot therapist who was like, "Oh, you need to spend time with uh you need to sleep in the same bed with a a, a family friend's kid so you can you can gain back your I don't know your childlike wonderment. I don't know what your trust. So it was all this big manipulation thing. Yep. And he he played them like he was fiddles. A puppet master. Yeah. And he even, you know, eventually he kidnapped their daughter Jan, and he took her on this. Uh, excursion i guess you could say the broberg mexico the brobergs were so jan's parents they were so um under the charming spell of bob birch told that it took the fbi to convince them that the daughter had even been kidnapped because they're like oh no she wasn't kidnapped he he wouldn't have done that he, he took her on a on a trip you know to horse <laughs> horseback riding yeah for multiple multiple yet. days yeah um and he ended up taking her to mexico and marrying her because apparently there is no age of consent in mexico or there is 12 like you can marry was there no age of consent, or was it just like the the cutoff was twelve? I don't know. If it's twelve, you, there might as well be no no age of consent because yeah, I mean exactly. at that point it's like what the fuck? There, it's a kid, it's a little, it's a little kid. No matter how you it's know, it's a tween. So I mean, yeah. uh, you know, I mean, whatever. So it's a preteen. I mean, on top of that, he did all this weird mind manipulation shit to Jan that I won't get into with aliens and tape recorders and stuff. I'm trying to... Well, basically what he did, he tried to make her believe that she was part alien and that there was this mission where she had to have sex with someone and become pregnant to save the world. And if she didn't do it, then... There would be consequences. Her, uh, she would be, uh, essentially lost in terms of like they would, well, the world, the world would, yeah, the world would be like doomed if she didn't, if she didn't give birth to like, and if she didn't do it, then they would try to go after her sister and make her do it, and they'd make her mom blind and all of that. Yeah. 
So, and there was this all this big elaborate way that Bob Birch told was able to convey all this to the girl, and yep. he he did it in such a way to where it made him seem like he was he was also a victim of this big plan and blah blah blah. Yeah. Eventually, she she legitimately like fell in love with him. Um, her being you know twelve and him being in his what thirty eight, thirty nine, something yep. like that. Yeah, so I'm trying to see where we left off. Um, the second kidnapping. Well, yeah, but uh, okay. So, all right, so we're just going to pick up here. So, for obvious reasons, once Robert, B- a.k.a. Bob Birchtold, was released from the hospital, he was not allowed anywhere near the Broberg household, household in Pocatello. But that didn't stop him from making contact with Jan Broberg. On multiple occasions over the next year and a half, she would receive handwritten notes from other children while attending her junior high school. The notes featured instructions telling her to go to a specific payphone at a certain time after school and wait for a phone call. The obedient young teenager followed the orders. When I would pick up the phone, it was always either Birch told or the aliens on the other end, always reminding me about completing my mission, Jan said. Jan said the handwritten notes were written by Birch Told, who would then bribe one of her classmates to pass it on to her. Then, one night in August 1976, Birch Told appeared at Jan's bedroom window and told her to put her belongings in a backpack and write a note indicating she was running away. Then they entered his Lincoln Continental and left Ohio and traveled to California. Left Idaho. Now... In the documentary, it doesn't uh, reveal that it was Birch Told who shows up at her window at that moment, uh, because it's just this sort of uh, cat and mouse game where it appears as if she just ran away, and then the police are are once again involved, and the the CIA, well, not the CIA, the FBI, the CIA is involved uh, in a way, but only in name only, and we'll get to that later. But, yeah, she it, it's made to look as if she just ran away from her family, but it was actually another kidnapping. Because, I, I don't, it's just one of those things that's like, how does this happen once, let alone twice, with the same individual? The you know? parents suck! I don't know if they suck, but I would just say they're probably, like, like I said earlier, they're just extremely naive, and uh, in terms of maybe... Maybe they might suck in a way where they just don't know how to handle this. But then again, like how how are you going to prepare for something like this? That's another thing. How do you prepare for things like this? Yeah, I mean, when you have a kid who is at a certain age to where, I mean, what are you going to do? Like physically lock them up, you know, in, in, in a room with no way to get out. I mean, there comes a point to where your child has to respect you to a certain extent to where they obey your rules. And and that's on the child. And if the child doesn't want to do that, then, I mean, honestly, just literally locking them up in in their room or having some kind of a, a martial law in your household is kind of the only way to... Can it, yep. you know? And who wants to live like that? You know, where you feel like your kid's your prisoner. You know, it's you, you just hope that your kid makes the right decisions, kind of on their own, and 
Jan was not doing that, but she's not really to blame in this because she was kind of indoctrinated at a young age yes. by this masterful uh, pedo loser creep. Yeah, this manipulator, this master manipulator in uh, Birchtold, who, yeah, he wasn't just having, you know, play, it wasn't just fun and games with him and the, and the first uh, excursion. He was raping her just like he had raped her many times before when he was uh, spending uh, those nights with her for his therapy. So to keep her away from her parents, he enrolled her in a Catholic boarding school in Pasadena. According to Jan, he had a manipulative way of keeping any inquiring authorities away from the school, even forging numerous convincing papers indicating that he was or that she was his daughter. He told the nuns that he was a CIA agent who barely escaped from Lebanon with me and that my mother had been killed, she said. He also said that people were looking for him and that he needed the nuns to protect me. He would come back on the weekends to take me away from the boarding school and do his dirty work to me. Ooh. Yeah. However, the FBI did eventually find Jan, despite some resistance at first from the school's administrators who were unaware of Birchtold's true identity. She was ba taken back to Pocatello by the authorities. At that point, she had been kept at the boarding school for over three months. However, because she was listed as a runaway, she was booked into the Bannock County Jail for one night upon her return. Now, isn't this also around the same time where Birchtold and uh, Marianne had their really long affair? Uh, I don't know. Hopefully, it'll say something about that to because I don't remember the exact uh, chain of events with that. It might say that in this next part that you can take. So uh, the next part's called brainwashed. Uh, Jane's eventual reunion with her mom at the end of 1976 was far from loving. It was the worst day of my mother's life. Instead of hugs and kisses and crying, I just walked through the back door and saw my mother standing at the kitchen sink. And without a word, I walked past her and down the stairs to my bedroom. It was as far away from my family as I could get. Mary Ann, Jan's mother, later remarked there was nothing left of her daughter after the second kidnapping. The vivacious, happy, and adoring girl she once knew was gone. And uh, that is uh, also mentioned by her sister. She's talking about in the documentary about how she just was completely... You know, the first time she came back, that she was still there. But the second time around, she wasn't anymore. With Birchtold now removed from the Broberg's life for good. Yeah, they're not mentioning this. <laughs> so at one point, I believe it was definitely it was definitely after the first kidnapping. And I think we might have mentioned this in the first part. But I, I just mentioning it again, uh... At some point, Marianne got involved with Birchtold and not just uh, involved with in terms of just hanging out, like became romantically involved with him. Yeah. There, so there was the first time before any any kidnapping or any funny business happened where Birchtold and Marianne. He just got to second base or something. You know, they, wasn't they hung out. They went on some camping trip or something and they like cuddled and made out and that was it. So then he abducts the daughter. She comes back. Marianne's on the phone with Broberg. And she's like, why did you do that? Why did you marry my daughter? You, you know, and he's like, why don't you come to my trailer and I'll tell you everything. So yeah. she does. And then he starts putting the moves on her. 
and she wins wife of the year because in the documentary she's like i'm not you know i'm not gonna lie it, it felt good to have the attention and and the uh you know he made me feel so sexy and this that and the other and and we ended up having sex and this went on for months and it was a, a eight months eight months and she was talking about how like it was a very exciting time because you know um he just made her feel so good and it was exciting yeah i think and this was during the second kidnapping where she didn't know that he was involved with it yet because she, she was just thinking like she just ran away yeah and, and, and he kept uh manipulating her by saying things like oh i don't know where she is you know i i want to know you know i'd like to know i'm, I'm really worried about her and i felt even in the documentary like after all this time i it, like when she would like reflect back on that period where she was fucking around with burst told it seemed like she was like kind of like lighting up a little bit like she still seemed like she like didn't really regret it that much. It's, it she seemed like she looked back on it with fondness. Still, I don't know. I I I saw conflict conflicting emotions for me. I I saw that she genuinely did have some love for him, uh, which is probably due to just his excellent skills at manipulating people and their emotions. But I, I definitely did see some other type of conflicting emotions, especially later when, you know, near the end of the documentary where she's talking about it. And you could see it on her face and that it that it was one of those things that she wishes didn't happen, but did. And uh, she feels bad about it, but not necessarily in the same way as uh the husband when he's talking about the uh, forced masturbation yeah that that that, that i definitely uh, obvious. i definitely got the sense that he he was <laughs> i that he regretted it for sure yeah. um i i think she's just one of the she was just in that situation where it's like i did it but it was i i have to admit i have to be honest and truthful that i did have some feelings for him yeah I can tell you this, I don't think she uh I don't think she really was in love with her husband Robert. Um, I don't know. I th I think that they I think they might have been in love early on and then kind of how things happen with relationships, you've been together for so long and uh things start to get stale and then and then you feel like you know you want some excitement, you want something new and uh so I, I wouldn't necessarily say that. I wouldn't go that, you know, deep into the relationship because all we really know about them is from this documentary. We don't know any of them, like, personally. Mike, since, so, since when has it been my style to not uh, rush to conclusions and pass preconceived <laughs> notions onto people? I mean, that's, that's my bag, baby. <sighs> so, yeah that was pretty definitely pretty shady on her part and i'm like how how could you also it's like how could you really also what are you doing why are you trusting him you, you were already involved with the fbi tapping your phone doing all this other stuff to get your daughter back the first time and now you're like oh, i'm just gonna blindly trust him he's not involved with it like come on he's clearly involved with it <laughs> So at this point, um, what Burst told was in in was he in jail 
at this point? Uh, as we're going back to this article here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was probably in jail for his little, little stint in jail. Yeah. Which wasn't very long at all. It turned out to not be very long. He got off for uh, good behavior. And then he was working with his brother selling cars. So with... And apparently he was a really good car salesman. Makes sense. It's another a way to manipulate people. So Marianne... Uh, so we have Marianne talks about how there's nothing left of Jan... Uh, with Birch Troll now removed from the Brobergs' lives for good. And that's because Marianne broke things off. And when her daughter came back home, like she actually did patch things up with the husband. And uh, he also decided to call off the divorce. And they decided to stay together for the sake of their daughter and their family. So the only thing Jan could think of was how the aliens were going to harm her family members for failing to complete her mission. Brainwashing techniques and psychological manipulation are tools often used by abusers to keep their victims quiet and obedient. Isn't that what happened with the guy who like kept the family uh, underground? Are you talking about uh, Tim Good? The yeah no the the one that was like a, in Switzerland or something oh the daughter underground yeah. and he like had a bunch of kids with her and shit yeah that was sick what the hell why weren't people complaining more about that story <laughs> <laughs> that one was the sick I mean this one's sick too but the other one that one was God by I don't remember even the name of that one but yeah he like had her in the fucking basement for like years and years chained her up and stuff she was yeah. basically just a sex a sex hole. Mm-hmm. Oh God. Yeah. Anyway, I forgot that we covered that. Jesus Christ. Got to go back and figure out the name of that one. So brainwashing techniques and psychological manipulation are tools often used by abusers to keep their victims quiet and obedient. The abusers will often craft a bogus storyline that is familiar to the victim. For example, the story about aliens that Birchhold crafted to manipulate Broberg would seem absolutely ludicrous to most people but it struck a chord with with the young girl. That's because the idea of a special baby born to save a world and its inhabitants paralleled the story of the birth of Jesus Christ, which was commonly taught to Broberg throughout her entire adolescence. Even the word mission was extremely familiar to the young girl who was raised in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Members of the church are strongly encouraged to go on missionary services across the world once they reach adulthood. And that ties into the whole special thing, too, where, oh, you're part alien, um, which could, you know, make her seem like she's a a messiah in some ways. Plus, before the first kidnapping, Birch told often regaled the young Broberg with stories about UFOs and extraterrestrial life, a topic he was fascinated with. Well, now now I feel dirty for liking the same thing that fucker did. I don't. Because that's just how it is, you know. There, there are a lot of in- things out there that people. I mean, for example, the what is it? The Columbine kids love playing Doom. Yeah, and they liked Rammstein. Yeah, I hope Hitler didn't like turkey sandwiches. He might have. <laughs> Never know. <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna be our next episode. 
about Hitler's food choices. Yeah, yeah. Dude, they I I'm surprised they haven't made a fucking movie about that yet. They made a movie about every other aspect of Hitler's life. Might as well make one about the fucking food he liked eating. Or didn't like. And I told you nine no more pumpernickel bread. It is disgusting. Anyway. So when you add threats and rewards with a story that sounds familiar in some level, you can get a child, even an adult, to believe anything Jan said. The wild story about aliens didn't leave Jan after she settled back into her normal life in 1976. In fact, she fell into a state of depression. Fearing for her family's safety due to threats from the aliens, she developed absolutely no relationships with any other males, shunning Pocatello high school dances and other normal activities for teenagers because of what Birchtold beat into her brain and uh, used uh, to manipulate her. He said that, oh, you can't be around any other men or boys because you can't You'll compromise be with the, them. the mission will be. You'll compromise the mission. And the, the aliens will vaporize your soul. So even her relationship with her father became very limited. I was really a robot at that point. I still believe that the aliens were watching me to see if I would accomplish my mission. It wasn't until the summer of her 16th birthday in 1978 that Chan discovered a way to cope. It was at theater camp, a place where she could tell other people's stories, even though she couldn't tell her own. It's where I could express emotions as another character, she said. And it's also where she began to question her mission. Jan calls it the ice cream miracle. One day at theater camp, a boy with a crush on Jan bought her an ice cream cone. While most 16-year-old girls would be excited by such a gesture, especially this 16-year-old, uh, pointing to myself here, Josh, I would have loved an ice cream cone because I was fat. <laughs> uh, Jan was in a panic when that happened. By accepting a gift from a boy who was not the, quote, male companion, um, a male companion being Birch told the one that she was supposed to, you know, mate with to uh, complete her mission. She now believed that the aliens were going to do something terrible to her family. Jan admits that she considered committing suicide at that point. God Oof. damn the level of indoctrination. However, nothing bad happened the following day. It was the first time she questioned the story about the mission and the aliens. From that well, in the documentary, it also mentions that, like, the dog was, was like, the, her mom called her and said the dog is, is sick. And that's where she was, like, thinking, like, oh, my God, you know, this is, this is you know, the aliens are going to kill the dog and they're going to kill my family. And, and, and then the next uh, day, it was like, oh, yeah, the dog's fine now. And her sister was or her mom wasn't blind and. Yeah. yeah, so that's when she started to, you know, be like, um, what the fuck? So from that moment on, even though I continued to believe it, I tested the story to see what would happen, she said. The biggest test came when she accepted a date to Pocatello High School's homecoming dance. Though she was scared out of her mind, she felt she had to know the truth. When I came home from the dance, everything was fine. That's when I knew, she said. While Jan still couldn't speak about the sexual abuse at that point of her life, bits and pieces of the whole story started to come out. It took years for her to discuss everything that happened during the kidnappings. Her best friend Caroline and her sister Karen were the ones who encouraged her to ultimately break the ice, and it was traumatic to verbally express what she had buried for so long. 
I was crying and clawing at the carpet, but Caroline kept questioning me and she dragged it out of me, she said. And then uh, the documentary mentions about when she told her parents and it was like just 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 flood of information and didn't she and and she said like she didn't say all of it at that point it was just it was just a stream of it and then the parents were like well you know we didn't want to go any further because you know it was too traumatic and for us and and for her and so but we got we got the gist of it so the next uh, part of this uh, article is called Not a, Stra- Not a Scary Stranger. Despite the sexual abuse she suffered in her youth, Jan Broberg has used the training she received in theater camp to make a name for herself as an actress in Hollywood. With a resume going back to the early 1990s, she appeared in a small role in the blockbuster film Iron Man 3, as well as having a recurring role in the TV show Everwood from 2002 to 2006. Recently, she appeared in an episode of Criminal Minds, ironically portraying the mother of a boy missing for three years. But she's incredibly excited about the upcoming documentary detailing her her troubled past. She believes the film called Forever B, which is ultimately not what it was called, it was called Abducted in Plain Sight, can help educate parents on how to protect their children from pedophiles, particularly if that person is close to the family. There were over 700,000 children reported missing in the U.S. last year, and many were believed to have been taken by somebody they know and love and trust. Many of those children are sexually assaulted. It's a disservice to think that it's always some scary stranger. And she's right. Um, This documentary really does break that cliche or uh, that trope, so to speak, that's been really hammered into a lot of our uh, brains through the media and through other uh, forms of consumption. So when you have all these shows and all, you know, the scary strangers and stranger danger and the 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 tropes of what child molesters are it's guys in a van you know giving your giving you candy it really does cloud your 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 judgment on like what is pedophilia and what isn't and you know who's going to be who's going to be a pedophile and who's who's more likely to do that kind of thing and so that's a very uh I, I think it's a great thing that she's doing is trying to, to break that and trying to show people that no, like that it can be like your your best it can be your best friend. It can be uh somebody involved with a family, it can be the uncle, it can be the babysitter, it could be, you know, anyone really. It's not just some creepy skeezy guy in a trench coat driving around in a in a van. Right, right. So, like in Broberg's case, the children are often brainwashed and manipulated by their abuser to keep quiet. But once the victim eventually comes to terms with what happened and starts talking about it, the family will often fail to file a police report or press charges. What happens is the family doesn't know what to do. They want to move on and they don't want to deal with a scary monster anymore. So people don't really go after that person. So that person goes on to the next community and the next congregation and a new family and it continues to molest children. That's exactly what happened to Robert Birchold. Birchold was never charged for sexually abusing Broberg. However, in a separate incident, he pleaded guilty to one count of rape of a child in Salt Lake City in 1986, approximately 10 years after Broberg's second kidnapping. So he was still doing it even after all, all of the stuff that was involved with Jan. 
Well, yeah, I mean, these people have a, a mental uh, disorder, you know. It's yeah. like if they were using their logical brains, A, they wouldn't be attracted to little kids, and B, after getting busted and, you know, almost having your life ruined yeah. and being thrown in jail, you still go and do it again. I mean, that's that's at least addiction, at the very least, mm-hmm. because, you know, addiction being... Doing something regardless of, you know, what the negative yeah. consequences are and you're doing it anyway. Well, it was like, it's a lot like uh, the, the Catholic priests who were uh, just shuffled around the Catholic Church after, you know, the whole Boston uh, Catholic Church scandal where it was just revealed that there was just all this abuse, sexual abuse that was going on. The movie Spotlight really did a good job covering that. And uh, it's... It's all true, and the Catholic Church, the Cardinal, and everyone like they just they just shuffled them around. They shuffled them around to church from church. They didn't they didn't kick them out. They didn't they didn't try to stop it from happening. They would just move them somewhere else. And even after the these priests were even revealed through the New York Times and all these other like bigger you know I guess I don't think it's the New York Times. It's like the Boston uh, newspaper. But like it was revealed all over the United States and all these other different publications and throughout the media, and they were just moved out of the U.S. Some were even moved up higher up in the hierarchy. I've heard that's a whole other story. I heard about I mean, all the, that. The movie "Deliverers from Evil." <laughs> yeah, like that's a that's a rough watch. I heard about all the priest stuff um, in the molestation and all, but I, ne- I haven't done any research into it, and I don't know anything about it, so I'm not going to comment on it. Okay. Um, so uh, Then we have the confrontation. Yeah. On March 6, 2004, Jan was giving a speech at a women's conference being held at Dixie State University in St. George, Utah. It was around this time that Broberg started going public with her story. However, she soon learned that an uninvited guest had also shown up, and he reportedly had a gun. Birch Told, who was now 68 years old, came to the conference to interrupt Jan's speech and distribute flyers that protested his innocence. According to press reports at the time, a volunteer security guard asked to see the flyers, but Birch Told threatened him. Then, as the security guard walked away, Birch Told struck him with his white minivan. The guard was flipped onto the top of the vehicle and dragged for approximately 110 yards. Birch told then drove away. I think it was like a member of a motorcycle yeah, gang. Yeah, it was like right? this motorcycle gang that was against pedophiles, I think. Yeah. But apparently they were like egging him on really bad uh, in uh-huh. the documentary. The documentary was like they were they were like all trying to like flip his car over and shit. So, I mean, there's like kind of two sides to that story. Yeah. Um over 40 people witnessed the attack, and police later arrested Birch Told at a McDonald's restaurant. Jan said she was later convicted of multiple, or she said he was later convicted of multiple felonies stemming from the incident in St. George. He was definitely not loving it at that moment. Oh my God. Mike, Mike with the dad <laughs> joke on deck. Luckily, Jan never saw Birch Told at the conference because she was shielded by supportive family and friends. But the whole incident was so terrifying that she decided to get a restraining order against the abuser from her yeah. childhood. However, Birch told fought the restraining order, something Jan, Jan didn't know he had uh, the illegal ability to do. 
She soon found herself in a courtroom sitting across from the man who had kidnapped and abused her during multiple occasions as a child. It had been almost 30 years since she had last seen him and she was startled by his presence. With numerous family, friends, and supporters sitting in the courtroom, Jan explained her case to the judge. When it was time for Birchtold to defend himself, Jan said he told the judge that the accuser was only doing all this because she was just an actress looking for her 15 Ooh. minutes of fame. Wow. As her heart pounded and she started to shake, Jan stood up and yelled, No, I'm doing this because I want to protect families from monsters like you. After the judge deliberated, he awarded Jan's request for a restraining order against Birchtold. The judge advised Birchtold that he was not allowed anywhere near Jan for the rest of his natural life, which, which didn't last much longer from that point. Birchtold died in 2005. Because he committed suicide, didn't he? Yeah, he overdosed on his heart medication because he... They ended up getting something on him that would put him in jail, and he told his brother, uh, I'm not going to serve a day in, in prison at this age. You know, I think because he... He's not going to do that again. I think because he knew he was going to get his ass royally handed to him. You know, being an old pedophile in jail is not not going to be um, looked well, upon. Being a pedophile in jail, period. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, if you're younger, maybe you can, I don't know buddy up or have a chance but if you're an old pedophile they're probably going to shank you and your fucking crepey skinned neck as soon as they, they get the chance um after almost 30 years of living with the trauma caused by the sexual abuse she suffered as a child jan finally got her day in court and won which is good um now she talks about the signs here. She says, Broberg said the parents need to look out for a number of signs, many of which could have alerted her parents that something was wrong about her relationship with Birchhold, even before the first kidnapping in 1974. Now, like we said earlier in the first part, this was a time period where a lot of this wasn't as widely known. It wasn't as widely discussed. So a lot of these signs weren't as much common knowledge as they are now. So for one, parents need to recognize when an adult shows too much interest in their children, even if it appears innocuous on the surface. Be on the lookout if your child is ever asked to be alone with that person, even if it's not in a direct way. She said, noting that parents should always be willing to accompany their kids on fun activities arranged by others. There's always a red flag if they're invited to be alone with a family member, a neighbor, or an older cousin. Older cousin. I, I think that that in itself isn't like initially alarming it depends on what the kind of uh situation is so like if it's like oh i'm going to take it to take the to take the kid to see a movie like or like something like i mean i i don't know i i think there are situations where i, I don't i think that could be technically okay but it's all about like knowing like what's going on and knowing where they are and so on and so forth. And if it like continues to happen like that, like if it happens every now and then, like okay, like one time, and then you know, then you just do everything in terms of like a, a organized meetup. But if like it's like repeatedly, then that gets suspicious. You know, if you take take a Timmy to the park, you know, yeah, it's yeah. Second, parents should always notice how a child responds to a certain person. If they don't want to be around them or they get a stomach ache every time they're asked to sleep over at so-and-so's house, those are signs to pay attention to. Definitely. Third, Jan said it's important to make sure that parents recognize there are boundaries between a parent and their child that should never be compromised by another adult. 
A major problem with Jan's relationship with Birchtoll before the first kidnapping was that he worked his way into the Broberg family as sort of a surrogate father, often crossing boundaries regarding the stewardship of Jan and her sisters. Fourth, parents should always question their children about their whereabouts. Parents need to press for clarification if their kids give them answers that are vague, misleading, or don't make a lot of sense. To show how easy it is for a parent to miss the signs of sexual exploitation, Jan noted that the mother of the child at the center of the 1986 Salt Lake City case that sent Birchtoll to prison was a psychiatric nurse, a profession where the practitioners are trained to identify signs of abuse. Jesus. The smartest people you know right now could have a child who is suffering at the hands of somebody who the parents know, love, and trust. That's because those parents don't see what's in front of them, and these kids don't tell. All right, guys, sorry to interrupt the show, but it's that time again when we have to tell you about some products that you may well love. And today we're going to tell you about Care Of. Now, what is Care Of? Care Of is a subscription service that makes it easy to get vitamins, protein powders, and more personalized just for you and delivered straight to your door. Spring into a healthy routine. With the winter blues coming to an end, it's finally time to get back into a routine that empowers you to feel your healthiest. Care Of's online quiz lets you know exactly what you need. Care Of's fun online quiz asks you about your diet, health goals, and lifestyle choices and takes only five minutes to find out your personal scientifically backed recommendations for vitamins, protein powders, and more. The online quiz is now new and approved to learn if you are getting enough protein, fiber, and good fats to determine if you could benefit from Care Of's new natural protein powders. Taking care of your health should be easy and convenient. It can be really hard to know what vitamins or supplements you should be taking, but Care Of makes it easy to find out what you specifically need to be your healthiest. Experience the Care Of difference. Care Of now offers protein powders available in individual packets for on-the-go and tubs, all personalized to your fitness goals and dietary preferences. For 30% off your first Care Of order, go to TakeCareOf.com and enter promo code UUM30. That is TakeCareOf.com. Enter promo code UUM30 as in Uncovering Unexplained Mysteries. Duh. So yeah, that's all there is to it, ladies and gents. Go and get yourself some vitamins and become a better you. And I, I wrote that last part, the Become a Better You uh, that that was all me. That was all Josh Cannon. Copyright 2019. All right, back to the show. So uh, that's all we have to tell and all we have to say about uh, this particular case and this documentary. Uh, like I said, it was one of the most shocking and uh, tense and just horrifying documentaries I think I've seen. Just just thinking about how one person could get abused over 200 times is just horrible. I would say, and it's just the stuff of nightmares. It was, it was, I don't know. Like I didn't think it was that that bad of a doc. I mean, as far as like, I for the subject material for me, it's just very for me. It was really intense. It didn't really bother me that bad. I thought it was. I thought it was an interesting case study. Um, I thought it was too, but I, I guess it's just I haven't been. A, I haven't seen as many documentaries that deal with cases like this. Now, so if you want to talk I, about I one when, that like fucked me up was. Um, uh, West Memphis three seeing those. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well that, that was pretty intense. Yeah. Too. That was, that was, uh, that, that was disturbing. Those little kids yeah. fucking bodies. Um, not to like, you know, 
not not to, trivialize, yeah, not to take anything <laughs> away from this documentary, but it it it, it I. I don't want to discourage people from watching it because I feel like it's important to educate yourself on this kind of subject matter. And I don't want to scare people away from, you know, it's like it, avoiding mm. this and keeping the sun, uh, keeping this in the shade and keeping it dark is how bacteria grows. You know, like you want to put this shit in the light. I think you should go watch it and you know, like I said, educate yourself on how these people operate, you know, and, and maybe you'll be able to catch some of the warning signs in people in your community or people, you know, who might be fucking creeping, creeping on, uh, creeping on the, on the, on the peds there. Um, <clears throat> creeping on the kids. Yep. So we go from one creep to another. Yeah, we're going from a creep to a dirty hippie, a dirty <laughs> fucking patchouli oil smelling, just thinking way too much of himself hippie. And this is an unsolved mysteries case. So uh, rejoice in that. You, Looking like Jeff Bridges. <laughs> King Kong circa 1976. Yep. This is the case of Ira Einhorn. This was on the Ultimate Collection. Uh, this, is a, this is a... This is on Season 8 of Unsolved Mysteries. Very helpful, Mike. Um, yeah, this is a case that uh, I remember watching during the dry spell of Unsolved Mysteries where the only way you could really watch the show was through the box sets because the Robert Stack syndicated reruns were, were out. The Farina reruns were in. And it, like I said, it was just a dry spell in the 2000s um, in regards to Unsolved Mysteries for, for uh, the late late 2000s, that is. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, on, on the box set, this was called Unicorn's Secret. Um, <laughs> Einhorn being German for Unicorn. So... Um, Ira Einhorn was a counterculture hero. During the 1960s in Philadelphia, he was the symbol of opposition to the war in Vietnam. In 1970, he organized Earth Day, a pro-ecology festival still celebrated every year. Einhorn also palled around with peace movement superstars like Abby Hoffman. He even ran for mayor of Philadelphia. However, there was a side of Ira Einhorn the crowds and news cameras never saw. In private, he was jealous, abusive, and self-centered. And in 1979, Einhorn became the prime suspect in the disappearance of his one-time girlfriend, Holly Maddox. According to author Stephen Levy, Holly was seduced by Einhorn's charm. He was quoted as saying, uh, the author was quoted as saying here, She was blown away because the force of his personality was considerable. And on the other hand, there was Holly, who was really not a solid, at a solid stage in her life and was susceptible to a big come on, to a big con. And really, within a few days, they were living together. So, this uh, reenactment, though, does not do a great job at all of showing Einhorn having this force in terms of his personality. Like, this personality that's just so strong that it's irresistible. Uh, because the actor they chose to play Einhorn, like he's just he's in over his head, and it shows. <laughs> he, he's he's a discount dude. 
And by discount dude, I mean discount dude uh, from uh, the Big Lebowski. So he's trying to have that sort of uh, personality and charisma, just kind of like that 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 stereotypical like beatnik uh, personality yeah. that you've seen a thousand times. Like and just be like, yeah, man. Hey, man, I haven't seen you around here. What's your name? Yeah, my name's Holly. Ira, nice to meet you. Yeah. But before long, the relationship became abusive. Andrea Boyce worked with Holly in a neighborhood co-op. And she's... Uh, now, before they showed some of the abuse, like, because they can't show that much because it's Unsolved Mysteries, so... Um, but the how they showed the abuse and, like, their relationship falling apart was pretty... Oh, dude, the acting, the acting in this one was, uh, it goes into the top tier bin of the so bad it's good acting of Unsolved Mysteries. Yeah. Do you, ca- do you so, care to uh, describe the famous yeah, yeah, scene? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so they're arguing on the stairs and they're yelling at each other and I'm trying to, and so Ira then, instead of like what normally i would i would think the exchange would have been would involve fists or would have involved expletives more expletives but since it's unsolved mysteries and it's on network television they have to censor that so it just sounds laughable because he's like i can't deal with this energy and if you don't like it this is my pad and you can just split (laughs) (laughs) yo hey man can't take this energy man this is my pad and if you don't like it if you don't like it you can just split man like god (laughs) and that's exactly what he did to her eventually oh my mike did split jesus christ it's going all dark on multiple pieces jeez mike just got dark just then um so then you have this uh, this uh, Andrea Boyce who worked with Holly in a neighborhood co-op, and she's quoted as saying, I remember a morning we were trying to get the store stocked, and while we were taking our break, she turned her head in such a way that I noticed a mark on her neck. What I also thought was funny about this Holly chick who was interviewed is um, mm-hmm. she was like, Iris struck me as someone who thought very highly of himself, which I didn't understand because I didn't find him very attractive. Yeah. I thought that was funny because it's like, oh, well, so yeah. so I guess you have to find the person attractive for them to think highly of themselves. Okay, Andrea, you have a little bit of a <laughs> ego yourself there. Um But anyway, by July of 1977, Holly Maddox decided she had had enough. She walked out on Einhorn without even bothering to pack her belongings. <coughs> Holly ended up at a beach resort near New York City where she began a romance with Saul Lapidus. And um, he's quoted as saying, She was just wonderful, curious, very bright, knew what was going on. For those many weeks, we were kind of inseparable. It was the start of possibly something big. But a- And then you had like interviews and stuff with the parents, too, at one point where they're talking about I think it was her sister was talking about how she and Ira would come to visit and she was never really that enthusiastic or impressed with Ira. She was talking about how he was rude and was dominating her, you know, verbally. And she just didn't understand why, you know, she was with him. Yeah. And and he he basically, she was, she, the sister came off to me as like this Southern belle and, and she was, you know, mm -hmm. it was basically like, uh, the, the, with the, 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 what's that old reference that show the McCoys and the Hatfields or whatever. Yeah. Uh, it was, it was like, you know, this 
you know, Holly is this southern esque. I get north and south, <laughs> something like that. Bringing this dirty hippie into this basically, you know, nice little southern, you know, Christian home, and yeah, I mean, he's coming in there with his his crazy commie his hippie ways, hair. man. His beard, and he's smelling his, his poor hygiene. We should all get arrested, man. Burn Tricky Dicky and Effigy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they actually said, they, they actually used the phrase Tricky Dicky, and uh, yeah. which, uh-huh. which apparently, apparently, because I heard my dad mention it. Uh, uh, um, Nixon. Yeah, it was Richard Nixon was named Tricky Dicky back in the day, which just shows you how corny people were in the 70s. So if you're older right the 60s now, 60s and 70s, yeah. If you grew up in the 60s and 70s, uh, your your ass was kind of corny back then. I'm sorry. You know, because everything's so cool in 2019. Yeah, lit fam. Hashtag bro. <laughs> yeah, we're so cool now. Actually, we suck more now. Um anyway, I I have gotten off track here. Yeah. Okay. Uh, according to J- Joel <laughs> Rosen, uh, who was the fil- who was Philadelphia's assistant dir- district attorney at the time, Einhorn went ballistic when he learned of Holly's new bow. Einhorn called her, and he was going nuts. He said, in his words, uh, he was off the wall. He threatened to throw all her clothing and all her belongings out into the street unless she came down to Philadelphia immediately to come see him. He could not handle the fact that she was going with this other man. Holly never returned from Philadelphia. Consequently, Saul Lapidus and some other of Holly's friends reported her absence to authorities. According to Joel Rosen, detectives in Philadelphia were quick to interview Ira Einhorn. His explanation was that... uh, he had gone into the shower and that she was going to the store and that he never saw her again. She just walked off into the sunset. It's just a terrible explanation. It, it doesn't sound legitimate at all. It sounds like it is just totally made up. Sounds like the words of a cocky man who feels like he has nothing to worry about. Like I, well, like a man who would try to rename himself Sherman Williams while he's on the run and because he wants to paint the world. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Pretty much. Um, he thinks he's above everyone because he had, he um, had a lot of very uh, he had friends in high places, so to speak. And he, yeah, he had a lot of uh, friends in high places in the government and uh, a lot of uh, notoriety. The uh, Seagram's heiress, or the Seagram's, mm-hmm. yeah, the Seagram's heiress was one, just one of yep. many. And he was supposedly. This just really uh, talented visionary, and so a lot of uh, people in the government, you know, really liked him. For well, it wasn't. His it wasn't. The, it concepts. wasn't the government. It was Fortune 500 companies. Fortune 500 companies. They right. would hire him. So Fortune 500 companies would hire him to predict trends, come up with ideas, to predict trends, <laughs> computers, and stuff like that. It's like it's like Mike doesn't know what he's talking about, and then I keep feeding him like the right things, and then you're just saying them after I say. Them. Hey, that's how it. <laughs> So it is sometimes. We're live. <laughs> That's right. We're very live. Yeah, no. He was he was basically like the prelude to a Steve Jobs. Like he was the dirty hippie that didn't actually like do anything, but he had ideas, man. I got ideas, man. I, gotta, yeah. I can I can tell you the trends of the future, man. It's like 
I don't know. Get computers. Like I a technology. I look at someone like Post Malone and I'm like he just <laughs> looks like a modern day like just, you know, hippie, like not actually that talented, but all the kids seem to really like him for some reason. So, you know, a bunch of companies He seems like a genuinely nice guy, but yeah. Yeah, I just don't like him. But I'm not a big fan. But that's cuz I'm old. Really I'm whole. old and he's not meant for people like me to like, <laughs> I mean, honestly, he's not. I'm, I'm out of the demo. Well, I mean, Ethan Klein, you know, he's not that young. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah, but dude, H three makes his career on on having to cater to fifteen year olds. I, yeah. I wouldn't want to live in a day in that man's shoes for a second. Like that that he's pigeonholed himself into that whole world of you know anytime jake paul farts ethan has to make a video on it god i'd kill myself anyway (laughs) the maddox family hired two former fbi agents to investigate their ambitious report filed hundreds of pages uh contained dozens of interviews and detailed the events surrounding holly's disappearance the investigators located a couple who had gone to the movies with ira and holly during the weekend holly went to pick up her belongings it was the last time she was known to be alive a few days later, Einhorn tried... And then the reenactment, I want to mention real quick with the reenactment. So they show just real quick, like, the this whole night of them going to the movies. And that's where they actually have a Star Wars poster. So, like, you can... That's the one time you could say that Star Wars and Unsolved Mysteries were in the same frame. Oh, I wonder... Together. I wonder if they had to get permission to hang that poster up from, like, Lucas Films at the time. Maybe. Or if it was, like... Because it had to do with solving a murder and it was seen as like a public good, mm-hmm. they could just, I don't know. I don't know how that works. Um, a few days later, Einhorn tried to convince friends to help him dump a large trunk into a nearby river. Yeah. Um, hmm. He said it was filled with secret Russian documents, man. <laughs> yeah, that's not suspicious at all, right? Finally. Like, if, if somebody you know came up and asked you to help you dump a large trunk into a nearby river... Would you do it? Dude, I don't even help people like move a couch. Like I'm I'm like <laughs> I'm a horrible friend just in general. So like even if I know what it is, I'm not helping. Like so if it's like a, a like some anonymous trunk that's like heavy, I'm like I'm not doing that. Fuck you. You probably killed somebody and put them in that trunk. <laughs> Yeah, that's what I'm just going to assume for everything. That couch pie has a dead body in it. I'm not moving that. <laughs> I mean, you know, fuck you. I'm not going to be an accessory to murder. In fact, that's like a great out from now on <laughs> for me to not look like a piece of stool. Uh, um, so, yeah. Why would he have secret Russian documents anyway? Because, man, he's like this hippie uh, on the forefront of, uh, you know, breaking everything wide open with Tricky Dicky, man. <laughs> Finally, the tenants in the apartment below Einhorn's told one of the investigators about a choking stench Ooh. seeping into their apartment. Ooh. That report brought Detective Michael Chitwood of the Philadelphia Police Department to Einhorn's apartment. Once I opened the door, I could smell kind of a decaying smell, and spending years as a homicide detective, I knew that smell to be body smell. Ooh. And- like, that whole interview just really... is. Churn, churns my stomach just turns it right out and i thought she might be here there was a sickness a sadness that holly maddox was found 
But then there was kind of a feel good that we were going to be able to lock up Ira Einhorn for killing her. And I want to mention the reenactment oh, yeah, no, again here. For sure. <laughs> yeah, the reenactment, like, so the cops come in and they see that the, 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 he has a door in his apartment that's locked. And he's like, uh, you know, you got a key for this? And he's like, no. And he's like, well, we're going to have to open it. And he's like, well, you're going to have to open it. And they open it up and um, they look into the trunk and they kind of like turn away in disgust. And one of them goes, looks like we found Holly. And then Ira goes, you found what you found. (laughs) (laughs) Like what? A fucking. It's like you found what you found. Found what you found, (laughs) man. So... uh, Einhorn soon came up with an explanation. He claimed the FBI and CIA had framed him <laughs> by planting Holly's body in his closet. Yeah, yeah, of course. Conspiracy, man. It's conspiracy. Einhorn's, Einhorn's attorney pulled off the impossible. Bail for Einhorn. Yeah, because he had rich friends who were able to get it bail He basically had a bunch of char- like high-profile character witnesses traipsing through... Uh, basically making a mockery of the justice system, um, saying how great and amazing he was when he was a murderer. You know, he 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 killed people uh, or her at least. Um, yeah, I mean, if they're gonna frame somebody, they're not gonna put it in the trunk, like right in the house, like. And also, like if he's he was gonna dump it in 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 the river, why didn't he like? Uh, okay, he tried to convince them to do it. They said no, probably clearly. They said, no, we're not doing that. That's too crazy even for us, man. We're not doing that. And then he didn't try to think of another plan. He's just going to leave that trunk with her dead body in his closet and put a lock on it and think that's enough. <laughs> think that the people aren't going to find it. That the smell is going to seep through to the apartment below. <laughs> so the, uh, the bail... The whole Ira getting bail was a crushing blow for Detective Chitwood and the rest of the Philadelphia Police Department. I was offended when they allowed him out on bail because in my entire career, somebody who's charged with murder never gets out on bail. And when I sat in the courtroom and I watched the parade of prominent people march before the bar in the court and sing the praises of Ira Einhorn, who was a murderer, who was a murderer, but nobody wanted to admit it. I said, this guy will never, ever stand trial. He will take off. In January of 1981, two days before the start of his trial, Ira Einhorn fled the country. Twelve years later, passed. Finally, Philadelphia authorities tried Einhorn in absentia for the murder of Holly Maddox. It took the jury only two hours to find Ira Einhorn guilty. And it was at this point that um, the... um, America's Most Wanted uh, documentary kind of picked yeah. up. Um, Episode, yeah. A segment on America's Most Wanted. It picked up uh, on on the case. Now, when I was watching this segment, the Unsolved Mystery segment, I was like, this looks familiar. Something about this is ringing a bell to me. And then I was like, is there a body in the trunk? And then that's ultimately what happened. And I was like, well, I don't remember seeing this particular segment before. So then I tracked down, I was trying to find, first I was like, is it a Cold Case Files episode? And I tried to look that up and I couldn't find anything. So then I tried America's Most Wanted and it was actually on YouTube. 
I'm having the hardest time finding America's Most Wanted segments and episodes, and I found that I've never seen this segment before, and it's been on YouTube for like since 2013. Like, how did I not know about this? Like, I guess I just had to search in, I you know, America's Most Wanted, a specific fugitive instead of like episodes, apparently. So I found it, and then I started watching, it, and I was like, okay, this sort of is starting to ring a bell to me. So I think what happened is when I was when I was a kid watching America's Most Wanted with my dad, uh, Saturday nights along with cops. It was a it was a uh, it was a tradition. My dad and I we did that every Saturday night, and uh, I think I did check I did I did watch that episode, and uh, saw that segment because the bit where John Walsh is talking about Ira Einhorn in the beginning uh, struck a struck a chord with me. It definitely rings some bells. Uh, the rest of it, though, not as much. I will say this. Even Unsolved Mysteries in their later seasons had way more production values than America's Most Wanted when it comes to their reenactments. Like, Unsolved Mysteries was running their uh, C game at this point in Season 8. Uh, and, and, and here's uh, here's America's Most Wanted with their regular D. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, that actor that they got for the reenactment. And I didn't even, I, I guess it just shows you how little I watched America's Most Wanted. I forgot that that show even did reenactments. Yeah. But that guy was like a, like a fucking C-grade Jack Nicholson ripoff that they had in the, uh, he he, he kind of came across to me as like George Carlin's Rufus yeah. from Bill and Ted, but like it's not George Carlin. So yeah, he did kind of have a like Carlin poor man's George Carlin. Yeah, he it, and he looked nothing like Ira Einhorn. At least the Unsolved Mysteries guy. I mean, kind, kind of. of. Yeah. There's a 1998 uh, NBC TV movie uh, called The Unicorn Killer. Because that's his actual surname, the Unicorn Killer. That's what they called him. And I always thought it was kind of, like, <laughs> for something as horrific as he did, like, he killed this woman, chopped her up, and put her in a trunk. He gets this magical nickname. <laughs> He's the Unicorn Killer. <laughs> yeah, well, he, he was, like, he fled all over Europe, and he was in Ireland, and then he went to Sweden, and... uh but I guess it's because his surname, Einhorn, means unicorn. Yeah. So that makes sense. Yeah. But apparently at some point, you know, he continued to proselytize his, hey man, hippie ideas to everyone mm-hmm. and his innovative, you know, ways of... His new his new uh, stomping ground, so to speak, in Ireland. Well, in uh, at some point, he ends up uh, talking to and befriending Peter Gabriel... Former yeah. <laughs> lead singer of Genesis, successful solo artist, one of my favorite artists of all time, and that—that uh, that, I would like to know more about that relationship. But it apparently stopped when he—he uh, he, he asked old Peter Gabriel for some money. Um. So yeah, I was like, "What the fuck?" Peter Gabriel had associations <laughs> with Ira Einhorn. Good lord! I mean, I'm sure you know. I'm sure Peter didn't wasn't aware of. Uh, yeah. You know, so I want to bring up the TV movie again because it actually has a young Naomi Watts in it before she was famous. Who is she again? (laughs) Naomi Watts. She was in uh, Peter Jackson's King Kong. She was also in Birdman. Uh, 
Okay. Good enough. <laughs> you don't... You don't know who Naomi Watts is? I do is? not. <laughs> hey, look, the chances of me being starstruck are going to be very low, so that's a good thing, because, like, I don't... Well, I mean, you have Peter Gabriel, at least. <laughs> well, yeah, but, I mean, I'm weird because, like, no one my age is going to care about Peter Gabriel. She was in The Ring... Mulholland Drive. Yeah, I've been meaning to watch Mulholland Drive. I I saw the ring in passing. She was also on Tank Mike, Girl. I've seen 27 movies. <laughs> you know this. If it's not one of the 27 that I've seen, then you're going to be out of luck. So, um, Einhorn was eventually captured. An American-Swedish uh, Unsolved Mysteries viewer named Hjord... I can't say his fucking name. Hjordis Rachel... Uh, recognized Einhorn's girlfriend, Annika, because he even decided that he ended up getting a new girlfriend named Annika Floden. Through the help of relatives, she was able to get Annika's social security number. She contacted a high-ranking Swedish police official who contacted Pennsylvania authorities. They were able to discover a DMV application that Annika had made for a foreign driver's license in 1994 when she used an assumed name that she and Einhorn were using and later cited her Swedish driver's license with her real name on it. Officials then followed the trail back to France, where they followed Annika to the home she shared with Einhorn in southern France. Authorities watched Einhorn for about a month before they finally arrested him on Friday, the 13th, Friday June 13th, 1997. So he was arrested on Friday the 13th. Wow. Although Einhorn had been convicted in absentia... Absent, absentia. Absent... Adsentia, thank you. In 1993, he successfully fought extradition for four years because French law required the foreign nationals not to be extradited based on trials in absentia. Finally, Pennsylvania officials agreed to give Einhorn a new trial, and on July 20th, 2001, Einhorn was extradited from France back to the United States. At his new trial, the jury convicted Einhorn on the basis that the murder has been committed out of jealousy over Holly Maddox leaving him for Saul Lapidus, who testified? Lapidus. Einhorn's defense. Lapidus. Einhorn's defense, which accused the CIA of murdering Maddox in order to discredit him for civil rights work and research on Soviet mind control weaponry, okay, failed to hold water. On October 17, 2002, he was given a life sentence, which he is serving in Houtsdale, Pennsylvania. In 2016, he was moved to a minimum security prison, presumably due to illness. And now he just looks like an old racist white guy, like with his picture now. Like he's got this handlebar mustache. Yeah, like ha he looks like he's related to the guy from uh, American Chuffers. Yeah. <laughs> hey, he just looks like an old, angry white guy now. He doesn't really look like a hippie anymore. No, no long hair. No beard. He looks like he looks like he he should be telling kids to get off his front lawn. Like a, he looks like a biker. That's what he looks yeah. like. <laughs> so uh, that's our thoughts on Ira Einhorn. Um, just such a just horrific just crime. I mean, just the whole thing. I mean, just I mean, it, it's just the way that it's just his arrogance. I think that's what makes it even like extra horrific to me. Is that like he kills this woman. He keeps her body in a trunk in, in a in a closet in his apartment. You know, it's like doesn't think twice about it. 
You know, even though he, he wasn't able to get rid of it, he tried to get rid of it, couldn't do it. Someone of his stature could probably get enough money or get somebody to do it for him, but he decided not to. He thought he'd just get away with it or something. I mean... I don't think he was... I think... I, I honestly feel like it was a crime of passion to a certain extent. Like, yeah. I don't think he was intending to kill her, but I think he was so... Well, he had abused her before. Yeah. I mean, I think those were crimes of passion, too. Not saying they're right, but, like, I, I think he was just one of those very impulsive uh, people who did not have their uh, shit together when it came to, like, yeah. their... Well, I mean, he smoked a shit ton of... You uh, dr- took a shit ton of drugs. Like, he was well-known for doing acid and other things. I mean, in the Unsolved Mystery... And not in the Unsolved Mysteries, one the America's Most Wanted... They show like some footage of him speaking, and like there's a scene where it the, this is actual footage of him speaking at like a rally or something, and like he's got the microphone and he's just making silly noises. He's just like whoop 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 whoop. Yeah, <laughs> it's like wow. So I don't think he was all there. No, from the start. But no, I don't think he. I don't think that was. It was like a calculated thing. Uh, I think that he definitely like. I think it was. I think he, she, she was. He's, he considered her to be his. She was going with this other guy. He was telling her, you know, you better come here and get your stuff. She actually decides to do that, and that was his plan. His plan was for her to come back, and then he was going to kill her. Hmm. Yeah, maybe. Doesn't seem very hippie of him. I, don't, I think that was a facade. I don't think that was really, honestly, who he really was. I don't understand people who, like... like ha- but think about it. In the middle, in this particular time period, in the 70s, that was a really in thing. To be the hippie, to be the, you know... Counterculture. I mean, it's still, it still is, like, the cool thing to be that, that, that guy, you know? Like, I think of, like, this guy would get along perfect... In, in Riverside, in the part of town, you yeah. know, in the kind of the hipster, hippie kind of part of town that I live in. Like, mm-hmm. you know, the the long beard and the out there ideas, man, and the yeah. all that shit, all that, all that mumbo jumbo crap that's all, mm-hmm. all surface level BS, in my opinion. Yeah, that's what I think it was. I, I think it was just surface level. I don't think he liter- legitimately was this type of... Uh, individual i think he was just doing it to get the press and to get the fame and everything and uh underneath all of that was was a pretty twisted individual i think I, probably a sociopath i think we can safely definitely a, definitely a manipulative individual i think we can safely say that and not get in uh, any kind of controversy with anybody nope <laughs> you didn't know well, him. ira Old Ira isn't going to be listening to this. <laughs> nope. All right, guys. Well, I guess that's all we got for you this week. Hopefully, we didn't bum anyone out too bad with part two of Abducted in Plain Sight. Um, we'll be back to something new and exciting next week. Hopefully, this was new or exciting. Or maybe both. Never know. Um if you want to join our Facebook group, which you should, because there's cool stuff in there that I can't mention on here, you can go to Facebook and search Uncovering Unexplained Mysteries in the uh, little search area, and our group should come up. 
It's a very cool group, and um, it's the the least drama-filled group I've ever been a part of, which I'm proud to say. Um, there are very few rules on there, but um, had to kick someone out for being a douchebag this week. So don't be a douchebag to people, and um, you know, whatever. Um, you can support us on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash uncovering unexplained mysteries. You get the podcast early. Usually you probably won't get it that early this week, but that's because, uh, I, I oh yeah, I had other things. <laughs> Damn. I forgot to mention this. Um, this was actually kind of like a big deal. I got on that whole anti-anxiety medication thing and that's kind of all I talked about. Uh, no, my band actually played, uh, we played a really big show, uh, this Thursday for a, a band called She Wants Revenge, which is a national act. Uh, they had, oh, cool. They had, Congrats. yeah, they had that song, I wanna fucking tear you apart. Um, a lot of goth and, uh, people who like industrial music, like, uh, She Wants Revenge. Um, but yeah, we played that show on Thursday and it, it went off really good. It was the biggest crowd we've played in front of yet. Um, and I think, uh, we, we had at least a dozen or so people there who had never seen us before who really liked us. And, um, so we got some new fans from that. So that was cool. And, um, this is something I'm only going to tell the podcast cause I'm going to save it for everyone else. But, um, our, our magazine around town that, um, there's a couple of them, but they're, you know, kind of our tells you about you know local events and bands and stuff it's called the folio weekly uh it's a magazine i've been reading for at least 10 years now since i was a teenager and uh my band's finally getting into the folio weekly we got a write-up and everything so uh that's that's really exciting um so we'll be we'll our band will be in the folio weekly actual an actual paper you know kind of that's a big moment for you. Yeah, yeah, it's a really big moment. I'm excited about that. It's probably going to be a couple of weeks before we actually appear in the magazine. But uh, I guess you're talking about, you know, how you remember checking that out and like probably had dreams of. Yeah, I did. I always wanted, you know, I always wanted my band to be featured in there, and uh, we're going to be. So that's awesome. So uh, yeah, if you want to check out uh, my band, it is uh, Dancing with Ghosts. I run the ad at the end of every single one of these podcasts, and I will never, I will not cease doing that because my music and my band is underrated. I feel, and you need to check us out, and you need to give us a listen, give us a chance. Um, some of you already have, and for that, I am eternally grateful. Um, you know who you are. Uh, but anyway, if you want to check out me and Mike on YouTube and see our other passions, you can find Mike at youtube.com slash OCP communications. He's the movie guy. He talks about movies. Mike, what was the last movie you talked about? Well, I didn't really talk about a movie. Uh, I showed my collection of Fangoria magazines so far that, that I've uh, collected over the years. A uh, good, good, good chunk of them are actually older than I am. Sweet. Yeah. So yeah, go over there, and he also does movie reviews, and you can check me out at youtube.com slash dancingwithghosts. You can find my band music videos on there that I personally shot, edited, directed, all that. Uh, I do a bunch of other stuff on the channel. I talk about a bunch of music-related topics, such as Woodstock 50th Anniversary's lackluster lineup, and my most recent video I did talked about the all the various vocal styles and vocal tropes in rock singing throughout the decades 
In the 80s, you had the big hair metal gang vocal choruses. In the 90s, you had the grunge yell and the uh, the yarl, the, the creed just kind of singing this way and how everybody sang like this. And then the 2000s, you had the emo screamo shit. And now, you, blah, 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 blah. You get the picture. So I did a whole video on that and how that has evolved through the decades. What are your feelings on, like songs and uh, artists and bands who have like traditional type of uh, hard rock music or metal and then like in the middle of the song it just goes into screamo what do you- like the, the the vocals are fine and like normal type of vocals for most of the song but then, like, they go into, you know, screamo. I hate that. Well, just for, myself. like, a short portion of the song, or... Yeah, it's, like, for, like, the chorus or something. It, it just takes me out of the song. And I'm like, this song would be so much better if they just stuck with the same vocals that they had for the majority of the song. <laughs> Instead of just going into random fucking scream, you know, screaming. Whenever, I'm not... whenever I hear screaming, my brain is telling me that there's trouble. And so I get this, I get this feeling of like unease, like it's setting off flags in my head, like something's yeah. wrong, something, someone's in trouble. But it's not, yeah, but it's not just that. It's also like the ones where they just do the whole sort of uh, growly sort of thing. So they're singing normally, and then they just go into. Ah, blah, blah, blah. You know, I think like, I think yeah. when it's used like really sparingly, screaming can be very cool, and it can ex and can really accentuate yeah. a part. But it's got to be used very sparingly, like Billy Corgan on bullet with butterfly wings where he's like despite all my rage i'm still yeah. just a rat in a cage yeah. you know yeah. and he like yeah, screams that part yeah. like like that's cool yeah. like that's using it the right way but to take an entire song and just do it in that <laughs> style it's like oh god kill me now like i cannot deal with that well, I, but, but yeah that's bad too but like for me what's worse is the ones that they trick they trick you pretty, they pull you yeah. in and then they fool you mm-hmm. into a, a, a yeah. false sense of security and then they just bombard you with i don't know like there's that afi the <laughs> afi song miss murder and on the bridge he's yeah. he's like screams and i and in no other part of the song does he do it and and i think that's it's i think that's a good it depends on how you know you know it depends on you know stuff like that but like it's 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 all one of those things it's it just depends i will tell you this and it's also personal i will tell you this i just i just like i like more traditional vocals you you are definitely in the majority on that one because uh during the um like early to mid 2000s when a lot of those bands were breaking big and getting onto the radio um they would have alternate versions for the radio where they would sing the part instead of scream it. Like um band <laughs> from Jacksonville, Florida, actually, uh, Red Jumpsuit Apparatus, they had that song Face Down. Do you feel like a man when you push her around? Um, yeah. They had that song on the radio. And in the uh, bridge, he's like, one day she will tell you that she's had enough. And he sings that on the radio version, but in the regular version, he screams it. He's like, "Why day she will tell you. Um, same with uh, Kill Switch Engage, <laughs> the end of Heartache. Um, uh-huh. That Anyway, uh, I'm not going to try to sing all this shit 
I'm a, I'm a, <laughs> I know I just hyped my band and sang shittily, but that was on purpose. Okay. You need to listen. You need to listen to me actually attempt to sing. It sounds much better than what I did just then. Uh, but yeah, no, they, they do like, they definitely like soften the screaming parts for radio. Mm-hmm. Cause I guess they feel like no one else wants to hear that. Yeah, either. I'm, I'm also, I just, I don't, I don't get death metal, but you know, teach their own. Yeah, teach their own. I have no problem with, well, I have no problem with people liking it, but it's not my cup of tea. I don't outright hate it or anything. I like the music in a lot of it. I, I almost wish. Yeah, I like a lot of the guitar work and a lot of the, uh, you know, stuff like that in, in songs like that. But I just can't stand the vocals. Yeah, I feel so. like they ruin it sometimes. I'm like, oh, man, the the song, the music sounded so good. And then you just ruined it with all that shitty ass like vocals over it. I know I am directly offending Corey in Canada right now, and I feel horrible because, uh, you know, he's one of our faithful listeners. I'm sorry, Corey. It's yeah. nothing personal. Yeah, no. It's a cup, Not cup of tea thing. Corey likes a lot of, you know, good stuff, too, in my book. He likes a lot of the classics, a lot of the Genesis. All right. Anyway, uh, I think it's about time for me to get a turkey sandwich. So until next time, guys, have a good rest of your night. Goodbye. See ya. Ladies and gentlemen, my new album, Hex, is finally available on all streaming platforms, Spotify, Apple Music, and anywhere else where music can be found. Also, we still have our special edition physical CD available at bandcamp.com. Check the link in the description of this podcast. Now enjoy some of the samples from my new CD. The Justice.